Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. When you hear the name George Floyd, what does that mean to you? A black man whose life was taken unprovoked. I think it represents a social movement and something that's inspired a lot of people and sparked a lot of change in many people's lives. It's an empowering name. When that event happened, it shocked the whole world. And um, I feel like it pushed us to be better, pushed us to be more demanding as a culture. I think like George Floyd is like more than just a name of a person now. I think it's more of like something that happened in our society. George Floyd is just one example of many people out there of countless names that I think have been forgotten. I really wish that we could remember all the names of victims to police brutality so they don't just become another statistic. It means a lot because it's been happening for decades and decades and decades and centuries actually. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and happy Memorial Day. This holiday is one of remembrance. And since 2020, it has for many people been inseparable with the painful memory of George Floyd's murder. He was killed on May 25th, launching a global protest movement that continued throughout the summer. Both his murder and those protests are inextricably tied with the other epic events of 2020. COVID, obviously, and a presidential election that would end in an effort to violently interrupt the transfer of power. So for at least one generation of young people, Memorial Day 2020 is very likely a permanent marker. There's a before and an after. That's certainly true for Chelsea Miller. We met Chelsea earlier this year as part of our Martin Luther King Jr. Day broadcast from the Apollo Theater. She was one of the lead organizers of the protest here in New York City in 2020, and she co-founded a youth-led civil rights organization out of that moment. It's called Freedom March NYC. Recently, she had an encounter with some middle school students that has really stuck with her. And when I heard about it, It struck me as well, particularly when I think about the context of this third anniversary of George Floyd's murder and the movement it launched. So we invited her back on the show to talk about what happened. Hi, and welcome back to the show, Chelsea. Hi, Kai. Thank you for having me. I'm definitely excited to be back. So you had, as I understand, an experience recently while talking to young people um, that was thought-provoking for you. Can you tell me that story? Tell me what happened. 
So in February, I actually went to a school in New York and delivered a keynote focused on, of course, Black History Month, but I think a larger conversation about the state of our current movement as it stands and what does racial justice look like and how do we reimagine equity? How do we reimagine our futures? And once the keynote was over, went to one of the classrooms and the students, you know, naturally had questions and wanted to know about activism and social change and how they can be a part of so many of these conversations. And really, I think just a curiosity for learning more, mm-hmm. right, about the history and what does this mean for their futures, right? And one of the questions that I asked them was, how many of you know about George Floyd? All of their hands went up. And then I asked, how many of you know about Trayvon Martin? And not a single hand was raised. Mm. And that was a moment of of course, disbelief naturally for me, right? But then I had to think about it. And I think that we all have to think about it. Say, why is it that in a classroom full of middle schoolers, they don't know about Trayvon Martin? And then it hit me. Trayvon Martin was 10 years ago. Uh, To the parents of uh, Trayvon Martin. You know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Yeah. And so if we're talking about why a bunch of 13-year-olds wouldn't know about Trayvon Martin, whereas that was such a defining moment in my life and my journey and understanding how we show up in this world. For them, George Floyd was their Trayvon Martin, mm. right? And so I think that it's important for us to think about the history of, of our movements and honestly where we are as a country and the fact that we are reaching right a generation that is losing so much of the history, even if it is recent history, right? And so what does that mean for the past 400 years that we have to reckon with? Yeah. there's so When I heard this story the first time, there's just so many things in it that caused me both emotional and intellectual confusion that, I don't know, I'm going to just try to wrestle with, with you for a minute. So one, like, why'd you ask them that? Like, what made, what were you, what was on your mind and heart when you asked it? Because I'm looking at students who, in a lot of ways, right, I'm young, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s now, but I started my work in high school, right? And so I can remember the core memories that changed my life and my trajectory of how I see the world. And so when I asked them that, it was more so for connection, right? It was more so for the yeah, you guys know Trayvon Martin's name and I was basically your age when I lived it. And so that was kind of the direction that I was going in when I asked about George Floyd and then getting to Trayvon Martin because I was trying to connect that bridge right between the the 13-year-old version of, of myself mm-hmm. and there was that curiosity that came right. on their face because they didn't know. They didn't know right. about him. Right. They wanted to, but they didn't. How, were, how did they respond when you told them who Trayvon Martin was? Like, what are some of the responses that happened in the room? Um, They were shocked. They were curious. They wanted to know more. And, you know, I told them essentially the story, right, of, of, of what happened. This is what happened. On the night of February 26, 2012, A 17-year-old black boy named Trayvon Martin was walking home from a convenience store in Sanford, Florida. He was a high school student in Miami, and he was in Sanford visiting his father and his father's fiance. He'd gone to the store to buy some juice and a bag of Skittles. 
George Zimmerman, a 28-year-old man who was in charge of the neighborhood patrol, saw Trayvon and decided he was suspicious. Zimmerman called the police, who told him to leave the boy alone. And instead, he took his gun and he stalked the 17-year-old child. I have always admired the fact that Trayvon confronted this depraved stalker when he realized he was being followed. But Zimmerman, he shot and killed the boy on the spot. The Skittles and the hoodie Trayvon wore that night became cultural symbols in the national protest movement that followed. George Zimmerman was charged with second-degree murder. He pled self-defense under Florida's stand-your-ground law, and a jury found him not guilty. Three Black women launched the Black Lives Matter movement in response, and Chelsea Miller has never been the same. And I'll never forget my teacher who literally set aside time. It was my history teacher. She set aside time before class. I was only, I think, about um, one of three Black students in the class, you know, and was like, how are you guys feeling? Hmm. We need to talk about this. All of those things that happen that, that first of all, to this day, literally, I, I love this, this teacher, um, Mrs. Volpe, if you're listening. And I also think that for me, it was important to realize that classrooms should be places for us to talk about the issues that are happening in our world that will define their leadership and define their journey. And we have a responsibility to bring that into how they see the world, right? And how they talk about it um, because they care. They care, right? They care a lot. But if there aren't safe spaces to have these discussions, then what? When you say it was such a, you, you'll never forget that moment. Can you just describe like, do you remember like how you felt and like why you felt that way um, when your teacher was like, let's talk about this? Um, do you remember what mm -hmm. your emotional response was? I was, I was so sad. I was so sad because I didn't fully understand it yet, right? Um, but also keeping in mind that my teacher was not Black. She wasn't, she's not a Black woman. Oh. And so for me, that was also powerful because you have to keep in mind that in a lot of our school settings, you'd be surprised how many Black students are being taught by, of course, non-Black teachers. Right. And so it's a certain level of trust that happens when educators see their students. And I don't mean when it's time for a test. I don't mean when it's time for state exams. I don't mean when it's time to submit your homework or talk about, you know, whatever you're learning about in the classroom. Talk about when you feel seen, right, and all that you are by a teacher. Yeah. And that's what happened in that moment when she said, we're going to pause because it is not business as usual. And I know that you guys have questions and are feeling confused. And I want to give space to honor that. Here's the teachers. That's how important of a moment was that for your life, you know? And now look at all the things you've done. Um, here's the teachers. Yeah. And so coming back to your experience recently, talking to those middle schoolers about Trayvon Martin, what did it make you think about your own journey in you know, the decades since that time? For so many 
Black people, we don't get to navigate our childhoods in ways that are completely free, right? We are always feeling attached to something, responsible for something, Mm. right? Stories that are connected to us. And so in a way, it made me think about the past 10 years, right? If not more of my own work and coming of age story and this realization that it's like, we don't afford our young people in this world, right? To live truly in a way that speaks to all of who they are, because whether or not we realize it, this world puts limits on them. And so I think that in a lot of ways, when we talk about our history, it's to get to a point where we start claiming those narratives for ourselves and using it as our strengths. It's Notes from America. I'm talking with youth organizer Chelsea Miller, who helped lead the protests that erupted in response to George Floyd's murder three years ago on Memorial Day. Coming up, Chelsea and I wrestle with how and why we can find strength in remembering the names and the stories of George Floyd and Trayvon Martin and the depressingly long list of other Black lives that have been taken in acts of anti-Black violence. And I ask her about my own growing uncertainty with this particular political act. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Natalia Silva. I'm a Brazilian journalist visiting WNYC studios. I'll be working with the Nose from America team for the next few weeks. One thing I really enjoy about this show is how much it talks to you, the audience. So do you know what would be really nice? Getting to hear what you think about the show. How do you feel about the conversation we're having today? Do you have any personal experience to share with us? There are a bunch of ways to engage with us. You can reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at Notes with Kai. Again, that's Notes with K-A-I. You can also send us a voicemail. It's quite simple. You can record it right on our website. Just visit notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says Start Recording. At last, but definitely not least, you can email us your voicemails or written messages. Our email address is notes at wnyc.org. Thank you. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and on this Memorial Day weekend, I'm talking with youth organizer Chelsea Miller. We first met Chelsea during our Martin Luther King Jr. Day event at the Apollo Theater here in Harlem this winter. Recently, she told our team about an interesting experience she had. While talking with a class of middle school students, she discovered that they'd never heard of Trayvon Martin, which really shook her. 
Because Trayvon's death in 2012 and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, it not only gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement, it ignited Chelsea's personal desire to become a youth activist. I told Chelsea that I, too, was, of course, deeply, deeply affected by Trayvon Martin's killing, but in a little different way. Because by that point, this was already a crushingly familiar tale to me. When Trayvon Martin happened um, was, like, I think the turning moment for of exhaustion for me. Yeah. And I remember how exhausted and over it all I felt by that point. So I'm immediately, the first thing that comes to mind is like, for you, it was a starting point. It's almost where I started to lock up and be unable to continue to respond Mm -hmm. a decade ago. And for these young people you're talking to, had never even heard of it. And I don't, I don't have a question here other than like, that's the immediate thing I came to. And I just want to put that to you um, and see what it, sparks. Yeah, I mean it it sparks a certain level of I wouldn't even say frustration, but it's more so I think a responsibility, right? That that we have and I think the weight of that because if we're talking about for me, right, thinking about Trayvon Martin and when it happened, you know, I was still very young. I couldn't go out and protest. I couldn't really do anything because I needed, you know, parental approval. And, you know, at the time, my mom's like, no way. And so (laughs) for me, I just think about how defining that was in my life and how it shaped me. Mm -hmm. And so when we asked, and I remember, you know, when we had our sit down at the Apollo and Mm -hmm. you said, you know, what is the legacy of 2020? And I told you, I was like, I think that we aren't going to be able to measure it for another 10 years. Because think about all of the young people who witnessed that, who are now mobilized. And so when we're talking about George Floyd 2020, we won't see, right, fully the impact and legacy of that for years. And so I think for me, it's like, okay, in that interim, as they are still being shaped by the story and so deeply impacted by it, how are we creating stories? How are we telling narratives? How are we building the infrastructure to support them as they come of age, right? Because we're talking about a huge population of young people who are waiting and are ready to take on the baton. And what is the foundation that we're setting for them? And so I think for me, it's just like, we have work to do. Yeah. We're we're thinking about this conversation in the context of Memorial Day and remembering and memorializing. Um, and so another thing that really I had complicated feelings and thoughts about when I heard this story is part of me, Chelsea, when I heard they didn't know who Trayvon Martin was, was like, good. You know, mm. was like good that they don't have that trauma. They don't have that that Black death to remember. I have such a long line of Black death to remember. And um, I, like, I don't feel like good, but like at this, yeah. but part of me was like, I'm, I'm glad they don't. Yeah, I, I get it. I get why you feel that way, but they have the legacy of that to reckon with, even if they don't know his name. And I think that that is the most difficult part to 
essentially just process, right? As much as we want to protect them from what this world looks like and the truths of our systems that have failed us time and time again, I think we have to understand that they are seeing it. Even if they can't name it, even if they don't know the origin, even if they're still struggling to process it internally and see how they fit in the world, they are feeling every single aspect of what it means to navigate this world in their Blackness. And it's important, right, for them to know that before there was a George Floyd, there was a Trayvon Martin before, there was a Trayvon Martin, right, there was an Emmett Till before, 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 so that they don't feel alone when they're going through these things. And they know that there are generations that have come before them that have so much to teach them, right? But also a legacy even beyond just trauma, but of resistance, of joy, of all of these things that have existed historically, that they are part of that tradition, right? And I think that in a lot of ways, that is something that can empower them, right? And so... I think it's one of those things where you just think about the experience of being a teenager and how lonely and isolating and feeling as though, you know, adults don't understand you, no one understands you, the world doesn't understand you. But I think there's a missing piece of how we tie generations together um, through a shared history, even beyond the trauma that I think is, yeah. is worth talking about. When you talk about the sort of legacy of resistance and joy, that shifted something for me in thinking about these memories. Um, how do we memorialize that? Um, do you see us memorializing that? How would we memorialize that? I think that we memorialize it by remembering that, yes, Trayvon Martin is no longer here, but his mom is, and she is a fighter, right? And we talk about even Emmett Till and the way that his mother showed up for him. And so we're talking about mothers of the movement. We're talking about even Eric Garner's mom, you know, just so many mothers, right, who have shown up. And so I think that from a legacy standpoint, their legacies still live on, right? And the young people who they've inspired and the changes that are being created and not even looking at it from a policy and systemic lens, right? Because we know that it's going to take so much more. But if we're talking about in the energy and the ways that people's minds have shifted and the ways that communities have come together and the ways that we have completely transformed, right? How we see ourselves, outside of these systems, I absolutely think that's worth memorializing. And I think it starts with telling the stories. I think it starts with telling the nuances of the stories to talk about our power and our creativity and the ways that we've existed and shifted culture, even in the midst of all of these things, right? And to me, that is a powerful story that we can carry on of movements, right? Of protests, but also of the fun, of the celebration. And so I'm excited right for for that aspect of our storytelling to really take hold into our future generations so mm. that not only is there a sense of pride but an understanding of our humanity as a whole yeah. but do you feel any complexity in the way we have focused on these individuals and their names and their moment of death as the starting point for all that sort of incredible mobilization you're talking about 
I mean, I guess that's what I'm wrestling with when I think about those middle school kids you spoke with, like focusing on these moments of death. Am I being articulate here? You know, mm -hmm. like I'm I'm trying to figure out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in answer to that, when I say their stories and their names, I don't mean their deaths, right? I, I mean their lives. I mean their legacy. I mean the people who loved them. I mean the ways in which their community showed up for them. Mm-hmm. I mean the little things, right? I, I don't mean the the nine minutes of the of the chokeholds or or the um, criminalizing of, of who they are, the criminalizing of their bodies. I don't mean any of that. I literally mean their stories, right? Their names, because they were given their names when they were born. And it's the same names that we say. And so I think that there's an element here of how do we remember our people, right? Because also thinking about the legacy of slavery, when we were taken, we were stripped of our names. We were stripped of our identities. We were stripped of belonging, right? And we had to redefine that. And so when I say their names and their stories, it's because that is their birthright. Their names are their birthright. And so we say their names because there's power in that, right? And carrying that on so that they aren't forgotten and those stories aren't forgotten because we know that historically that the greatest way that we were conditioned was in removing those stories from us. And now that we have that, we should fight for that. You know, and so when I think about the 60s and the fact that there weren't, right, iPhones that you could take out and use to record. And so a lot of the information was passed down through intercommunity, right? And that storytelling aspect, when you talk about even, you know, what took place during the slave trade and talk about what took place when slaves came here, the Underground Railroad, all of that was through stories, right? Stories that we had to hold on to, to believe. And so a lot of that history within our communities is so critical to how we define our own narratives and how we shape them and how we pass that on to next generations. Because if we forgot Emmett Till's name, Emmett Till sparked the civil rights movement, right? The work of his mother, the relentless work of his mother to shift the way that the world saw her son, right? And so all of that ties into storytelling. And so when I think about Trayvon Martin, when I think about George Floyd and the the legacy of George Floyd, I want to ensure, right? And I think we all have a responsibility to ensure that we are tying the way that we speak about them, that we're tying the way that we speak about memorializing into larger conversations of our liberation that, again, exist even outside of the trauma because Black people, Black children deserve rest. You know, we deserve joy. We deserve all of those things. And it's important to show in our history that we have had all of those things in spite of. For, and for yourself, do you remember when you went and how it sort of dawned on you? Like, oh, remembering these individual human beings and how they lived, this is an important political act for me. It dawned on me in 2020. And the reason that I say that is because I remember just being home and watching the way the media was talking about George Floyd. And so as I saw that, you know, 
let's investigate his his priors and, and does he have a record and is he even a great father and all these questions that were being asked when in that moment, what was the most important thing was the fact that he was a man who deserved to live, right? It was that simple. And somehow in the midst of these conversations, the true story was being missed. And if we allowed that to continue, then we would lose the battle before it even got to the courtroom. We would lose because as much as we want to say that the way that we see the world doesn't matter once we enter a judicial and legal system, we know that is a lie. As much as you want to protect a jury and make sure that there is no bias at all once you enter the courtroom, we know that that is a lie. And we know it's a lie because we've seen the way in which our criminal system has failed Black folks time and time again. Stories matter. And given that, I asked Chelsea about the public narrative surrounding Jordan Neely, yet another Black person killed in public in senseless circumstances. He was choked to death on a New York City subway train by a passenger who felt threatened. Neely was a performer who was living on the streets, struggling with mental health, and shouting on that train that he needed help. I mentioned to Chelsea that relative to previous stories, it seemed to me like the narrative around Neely's death shifted quickly from questions about what he did to bring it on himself to who he was as a human being. I asked how she felt about the narrative. I would say that it has been a battle. Even though it seems as though we have gotten to a point where, you know, there's a lot of corrective work that's happening around how we speak about him and how we speak about what took place. The reality is that there is still a huge influx that is pushing back against that, right? And so it saddens me the fact that we have to fight so hard for him to be seen as human, right. you know? And, and it's so interesting because right. in in one aspect, we know the playbook. We've seen it so many times. But in another aspect, we also have to realize that the playbook has worked so many times. And that is the frustrating part. And it's also one of those things where you'd be surprised how many folks who rallied behind George Floyd are quiet about Jordan Neely. Oh, really? You feel right? that? Because there's a, it's kind of like a a certain level, right? In which I'll, I'll advocate for this, but hmm, did they say he did so-and-so a couple days prior? I think I'm going to be quiet on this one. And I think what we fail to realize is that we are not solely advocating for individuals. We are advocating for larger problems that must be addressed. Otherwise, there's always going to be a name. There's always going to be an individual. And so it's frustrating. I think that there's a huge challenge in who our communities show up for and why. And I also think that there's another element here that a lot of people don't realize that in 2020, the world shut down. And so because the world shut down, a lot of people were paying attention in ways that historically they haven't before. Mm. The challenge of organizing for Jordan Neely three years later 
is that the world is on full throttle. And so what happens when you are in the midst of protest for someone that others may not deem as worthy when the capitalist engine is on full throttle? Do you think that the folks who maybe had some time or, you know, were thinking about and reckoning with even their own humanity during a pandemic is thinking about someone who was homeless, experiencing mental illness on New York City subways? It's not the same anymore. And I think there's also an element of, you know, you shut down a bridge, right, as, as a protester. You know, these things happened in 2020 where protesters were shutting down bridges across the country, right? And it was okay at the time. Um, and when I say it was okay at the time, I don't mean that arrests didn't happen. And I'm talking about the public imaginary of what protest looks like for so many folks who believe in, you know, advocating for Black lives. They were rallying that on. But what happens now when you believe in, in fighting for Black lives, but you're on your way to work and a bridge gets shut down? Are you still able to show up for that movement in the same way you were able to show up for it in the comfort of your home? Or now is it too personal? Yeah. I mean, that's a question for me, if I'm real talk, you know? Yeah. Chelsea Miller is co-founder of Freedom March NYC, a youth-led civil rights organization that emerged as a key organizer in the global protests following George Floyd's murder on Memorial Day, 2020. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. If you heard anything you want to talk back to us about, just go to our website, notesfromamerica.org. Look for the little green button and you can leave us a voicemail right there. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Reporting, producing, and editing by Karen Froman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer and I am Kai Wright. Happy Memorial Day.